Uh, how, how long after January the 1st can you still say Happy New Year? There's a bit of debate about that. Probably February is a bit too late, but we're, what were you, the 14th? That's okay. How was uh, your holiday break? Yeah? Yeah, I was nice and relaxed. I was so relaxed when I came back to work this week, I didn't realise until lunchtime that I was wearing thongs to work. Uh, I had to concentrate a lot today to make sure I took my thongs off today before I got here to preach. How was uh, your time with family? Was that, was that good over Christmas? Yeah. Uh, Christmas time is infamous for kind of family fights, isn't it? When the extended family get together, magic doesn't always happen. Uh, before Christmas, there was a, uh, a survey and 70% of people said that they expected to have a family fight over the Christmas period. Uh, how, how does your family go with fights? You, you're pretty good at it? I think that's why they have the Boxing Day sales, isn't it? <laughs> why is that? So they can replace all the ornaments and crockery and furniture that gets busted up during the family fights. Now, there was a poll which asked 2,000 adults what causes the most arguments and family bust-ups over the, f- over the festive season. So I thought we'd do a quick quiz of family feud and we would see what do you think causes the biggest arguments over the Christmas period. Who can, who can try and guess number one? What was that? Money, okay, no, it wasn't money, but good one. Who cooks dinner? Number one. And number one, who is in charge of the remote control? What, I guess that's what Christmas movie do you want to watch? Uh, some want to watch Die Hard, some want to watch Nativity, so, you know. Uh, number two, anyone guess? Show us number two. Mum stressing over the Christmas lunch. Number three, no one helping mum. Number four, who washes up after Christmas? Everyone's tired and lying on their back. Number five, cheating over a board game or charades. But money is another good one. Yes, family feuds and resentments and unforgiveness and uh, uh, rumbling conflicts They kind of simmer under the surface during the year and often they can boil over at Christmas time, can't they? And that got me thinking as I was preparing this passage, which we've just heard read. Do you have difficulty forgiving people? Is there something that someone has done to you that you have never been able to forgive? There was a guy called Mark. He was 30 years old. And his girlfriend cheated on him when she was four months pregnant with their second child. And she said to him, I don't want you at the birth, I want this new guy at the birth. Mark said, she took this really special experience away from me. Shortly after, uh, the relationship broke up and uh, Mark started a new relationship. And then when his ex heard about that, she then wanted to immediately patch things up with Mark He said no, and then she started interfering with 
him seeing their kids. This is what Mark said. The one thing I'll never forgive is her use of my kids to hurt me. The things she's done are too numerous to list, but each time she has used my kids to hurt me, it also hurt them. That is what's truly unforgivable. So he wasn't able to forgive her. What do you, what do you think of Mark's response? Uh, Jessica, a 25-year-old woman, she says this, I have two people that I'm unable to forgive. The first one is my biological father. So when uh, Jessica's mother became pregnant, her father wanted a, an abortion, the mother refused, and then the mother got really sick during the pregnancy and the father just walked out. When Jessica was nine months old, her mother remarried. And then this is what Jessica says. My stepfather is the second person that I could never forgive. He mentally abused myself, my mum and my siblings my whole life and preyed on us as he thought we were weak. Next slide. As I grew older, he sexually harassed me and I am scarred for life by his actions. I'll never forgive either dad for their actions. Both of them have caused me great hurt and insecurities. Now you have to feel for Mark and Jessica, don't you? They are horrible, horrible experiences that they have been through. Now, as Christians, what are we to do when somebody wrongs us? Is it okay not to forgive someone who has hurt us that badly? And what if someone wrongs you and you forgive them, but then they wrong you again and then again? Is there any limit to how often we are to forgive them? Well, we're going to look at that passage that we heard that uh, Jesus told us, taught us. And we're going to hear from Jesus. Jesus, who was wronged more than any person in history. So we're going to see what he has to say. Before we do that, we're going to pray. Uh, this is what we do at this time of uh, our time together. We're going to pray. The Lord speaks to us through his word. We're going to speak back to him through prayer. He loves to hear our requests and our prayers as a caring father, and so we're going to pray to him. Three things I'd like to lead us in prayer. And remember, it's, it's, it's not me praying, it's me leading us in prayer, leading the church in prayer. We're going to pray for three things. Firstly, we're going to pray for the youth camp that is on this weekend. Jordan and Annabelle and the team are leading 37 of our youth. So we're going to pray that the Lord does great work there. Secondly, we're going to pray for our Simply Christianity course, which starts tomorrow. And we have about 10 to 12 RSVPs, so we're really praying that the Lord will do some work in these people who are genuinely inquiring. And then thirdly, we're going to pray for some good follow-up from our Christmas lunch. If you remember, we had a Christmas lunch on the 25th of December. We had about 100 people there. Uh, we were able to share Christ's love. We were able to uh, provide them with a meal. We were able to share the Christian... Uh, Christian message. Three very quick photos from the Christian lunch. This is our team. So if you are part of the team, thank you very much uh, for being part of that team. It wouldn't have happened without you. Next photo, that was a kind of picture of uh, the layout of, uh, uh, of the crowd there. And thirdly, we had a very special guest from the North Pole who came and gave out gifts. So let me lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Christmas period, the beautiful Christmas service that we had that just brought us so close 
to you through the Christmas message and we thank you for all the hard work that went into that. Father, we just pray for those who indicated that they would like to find out more about you through our Simply Christianity course. And so, Lord, I, want, I just commit that course to you. I pray that, Lord, that the 10 to 12 that have RSVP'd might come tomorrow, that they would not be hindered, that they would come with soft hearts, that uh, you would open their eyes to the truth of who Jesus is, that they w- we would see people saved. I pray, Lord God, for our youth camp. I thank you for Jordan, for Annabelle, for the leaders. And we just pray, Lord, that the kids there would come to love Jesus. Those who already know you might uh, grow in their faith. I pray, Lord, that you would keep the group safe. Uh, there would be great fellowship, great friendships formed. And Father, we pray for good follow-up from our Christmas lunch. We thank you for those that heard the Christmas message, perhaps for the first time. We know that, Lord, that for some, it really had an effect on them. We thank you for our relationship with the council and with the community. And we pray that this church would continue to be a beacon on this corner, reaching people with the message of Christ. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's have a look at this story together. This story has really done a work on me in the last few weeks as I've prepared it, so hopefully it will have the same effect on you. Verse 21. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Now, why did Peter come up with seven? Why did he think that was the number? Why not six? Why not eight? Well, in the Bible, seven is a number for completeness. And it often means an indefinite number of times. Uh, You see this in Psalm 119. Seven times a day I will praise you. It doesn't mean he gets to seven and he says, right, that's it. It means I will praise you an indefinite number of times. In fact, Jesus uses seven in the same way in Luke's gospel. If your brother or sister sins against you, even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, You must forgive them. So Jesus' answer here no doubt stuns Peter because he takes Peter's answer and then he multiplies it dramatically, doesn't he? Next verse. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. What does Jesus mean by 77 times? Does he mean, right, forgive 77 times, but when you get to number 78, you go, sorry, buddy. I'm done. I'm done. This is 78. I've got no forgiveness left. No, he doesn't mean that. 77 means we're not even to keep track of how often we grant forgiveness. Forgiveness is to be unending. If 7 means indefinite, then it's like indefinite times indefinite. In Genesis 14, a really interesting passage, Lamech says this, If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. He's boasting that he will avenge himself 77 times upon anyone who wrongs him. Jesus' answer? Do the exact opposite. Forgive indefinite times indefinite. Now Jesus then expands his answer, as as we just heard read, With a parable. A parable is a a story from everyday life that illustrates a spiritual reality. And in the story, 
we see that the king represents God and we see how forgiveness works in God's kingdom. Let's go to the story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, that's literally 10,000 talents, so someone who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, 10,000 talents, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to, and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. Now, the talent was the highest denomination of currency in the ancient Roman Empire. It was a weight, a weight. And 10,000 was the highest number that the Greek language has a word for. And so, in other words, you couldn't have a bigger debt. That's what Jesus is saying. You couldn't have a bigger debt. The debt is insurmountable. It's incomprehensible. Now, if you want to put a number to it, a day's wage back then was a silver coin, a denarius. There were 6,000 denarius in a talent. And so, if you work, do your math, you would have to work off 20 years of labor to pay back one talent. So 20 years to pay off one talent. How many years would it take to pay off 10,000 talents? 200,000 years to pay off that debt. It's a debt that this man cannot pay. How this servant racked up this amount of debt, we're not told. Probably gambling, I would imagine, right? Betting on the camel races or whatever they did back then. Just a, just a side note, gambling is not a good thing to get into. In the ancient world, if you accrued debts and you couldn't pay them back, you could actually sell yourself into slavery, work off that debt, and then you, would, then you could then be freed. That was a very common way of doing things back in the ancient world. This servant is unable to pay his debts, and so he and his family are to be sold to a new master in order to raise at least some funds for the king. Now, the top price for a slave back then fetched only about one talent and usually about a tenth of that. And so the king is not going to recoup anything close to what he is owed. Verse 26. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged and I will pay back everything. Now, is that a promise that he can keep? No. There is no way he can pay it back. It would take multiple, multiple, multiple lifetimes to pay back 20,000 years of debt. 200,000 years of debt. No one's picked me up on that mass. 200,000 years of debt. But the servant's plea touches the king's heart. And to the astonishment, I think, of Jesus' audience, the king has pity on him. Take a look. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. The word pity there is the same word for compassion. The word that describes Jesus' interaction with people. It characterizes the way that he deals with people. The word pity, compassion, 
It mean, it's the, the Greek word is splanknistheis. Splank refers to the guts. You and I, we have a splanknic nerve that supplies our guts. This king was moved from deep, deep within. And he has compassion on this man. Not only will the king not sell this servant on, but he will not require payment of any kind. The servant gets immeasurably more than he asked, and he receives forgiveness that he had not dared request. There's a picture of what it may have looked like. I imagine the king to be smiling a little more than that, but that's the artist's impression. Verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Now what do you think of this servant's actions? Anyone agree with them? No? No, they're appalling, aren't they? They're appalling. The amount owed to this second servant is 100 silver coins, 100 denarius, 100 days' wage. So about four months' wage. Now just compare that with what the first servant owed. What did he own? 200,000 years of wages compared to four months' wage. The, the disparity in what is owed makes the servant's actions all the more appalling, doesn't it? His fellow servant, next slide, fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Do those words remind you of anything? Yeah. It, he begs for mercy with the same words as the first servant begged for mercy. Shouldn't the first servant have heard himself in those words? But just as the amounts contrasted dramatically with each other, so the unforgiveness of the servant contrasts dramatically with the forgiveness of the generous, compassionate king. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. The first servant was forgiven trillions, but he could not forgive himself peanuts. He himself could not forgive peanuts. He refused to forgive peanuts. He accepts mercy, but he's not moved to give it himself. The unforgiving servant, he lacks an appreciation of the king's forgiveness in the past, but he also lacks fear of the king's judgment in the future. Verse 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, which he can never do. Which he can never do. He's tortured until he can pay back what he owes, which he can never do, which I think points to the horror of eternal punishment, doesn't it? 
Now, Jesus sees no incongruity in the actions of the king, or sorry, the king, which represents God. He sees no incongruity in the actions of his heavenly father, who forgives so graciously and yet punishes so ruthlessly. It's precisely because God is a God of compassion and mercy that he cannot possibly accept in his kingdom anyone who does not live in that way. So Jesus is teaching us a number of things about forgiveness, isn't he? Point number one. We must come to terms with the magnitude of our debt before God. Of our debt before God. So Peter, who asked the question, how many times must I forgive? He needs to see that he is the servant in the story. I am the servant in the story. You are the servant in that story. Every human being owes God a debt that they cannot repay. All of us have fallen short of giving God the honor that he deserves, and we owe God a debt of honor that we can never repay, which makes us liable to judgment when Jesus comes and settles accounts. And even if we try and work the debt off, we'll never be able to, because every year we would actually be adding to the debt, not diminishing it. Now, Peter doesn't yet grasp this reality. Do you? Have you come to terms with the magnitude of your debt before God? Second point, we must come to terms with the cost that God bore for our debt. See, when the king waives this monumental debt, the king bears the entire cost himself, doesn't he? Peter doesn't yet grasp. When he asks this question, at, at this point in the narrative, when he asks this question, he doesn't yet grasp that this is why Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He's on the way to be betrayed, to be killed by the Jewish leaders in order to pay for Peter's monumental debt, to pay for my monumental debt, to pay for your monumental debt. That's why Jesus is doing it. And in the parable, it's the king and the king alone who can bear the cost of the debt. And it's God and God alone who can bear the cost of your debt and my debt. And out of compassion from deep within, he's moved to go to the cross for you and for me to pay for our debt. Do you understand the cost that God bore at the cross for your debt and my debt? He was the only one who could bear the debt for your sin and my sin and he did it. Moved by deep compassion. Now this is the point of the second half of the parable, isn't it? To those who have been shown such extraordinary, extravagant mercy by God, it is outrageous and appalling to be unforgiving towards others. The unforgiving servant, he doesn't see the implications of, of what he's done. Peter doesn't yet understand it either. He doesn't understand what Jesus is going to do for him. This, this happens before the cross. Jesus doesn't, uh, Peter doesn't understand what Jesus is going to do. If he did, he wouldn't have asked the question, how many times must I forgive? Do you know the cost that God bore for your debt? 
Thirdly, God's servants are expected to forgive as they have been forgiven. At the heart of, of forgiveness is the cancelling of a debt. Wrongdoing always generates some form of debt between people. It may be very tangible, like money. It may be less tangible, like the hurt that our words would cause someone. It might be the betrayal of cheating on a spouse. But when we forgive, we decline to call that debt in, don't we? We do not insist on payment. And we won't cut the wrongdoer off from relationship with us. Instead, we will open our heart to them again, even though that costs us something. And it might cost us again in the future. That is why forgiveness is so hard, because it always costs the forgiver something. But Jesus is really serious about members of his kingdom, you and I, forgiving others, isn't he? You get that impression? Yeah, He's really serious about it. Have a look at the next couple of verses. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The Lord's forgiveness of us is without conditions. When we became Christian, it doesn't matter what we'd done, who we were, the Lord forgave us, no conditions, doesn't matter but even though the Lord's forgiveness is without conditions, it is not without expected consequences. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of mercy. And those in his kingdom need to decide whether they want to be part of the kingdom of mercy or not. To receive mercy but not extend mercy is totally incongruous with living in the kingdom. Those who have genuinely received forgiveness will Grant it to others. Now, many of the deepest hurts and wrongs that we experience will come from those close to us, won't they? From our loved ones, from our friends, from our family, from our church family, from your pastors even. We will inev inevitably wrong each other and we will generate debts. But what are we to do if that happens? We're to forgive our brother or sister from the heart with the same kind of unrestrained mercy that the Lord has shown us. And to do otherwise is as appalling as the actions of that unmerciful servant. I wanted to sh share with you a story that happened to me just very recently. So I began to be suspicious that someone was hacking into my Netflix account. Anyone got Netflix here? Yeah? So I got suspicious that someone was hacking into our family account. Because uh, in the continue watching section and the how about you watch this section, it was full of Indian movies. Right, just full of Indian movies. They'd watch so many Indian movies that every, the algorithm worked out that every, every, every time I wanted, they suggested a movie for me to watch, it was Indian. So anyway, firstly I just thought my kids had this sudden interest in Bollywood. But I checked with them and no, they hadn't. And then every time I logged into Netflix, the audio had been changed to Hindi. And so, I mean, it's pretty funny to hear Arnold Schwarzenegger speak in Hindi, but, you know, it gets a bit tiring after a while. And then, every, 
as I logged into, uh, as I tried to log into Netflix, I, was, I couldn't get into my own account because too many, I was told too many people were already watching the account. Finally, I got an email from Netflix saying that someone was logged, logged into my account. Not that one quite yet. That someone had logged into my account uh, from an unknown device in India. So I thought to myself, this has been happening for a while, but during the holidays I had a few moments, so I thought, okay, I'll change my password. So I changed my password. Within only a few hours, I received this email. I love this. Look at this email. A guy from India. Hey, bro. I've been using your Netflix account for the past one year. If possible, could you please share your password, please? I've not shared it with anybody in the past, and I'll not even this time, so please help me, dude. So he got into my Netflix account, and he found my, then he found my, he hacked into that, then he found my email, right? And he sent me another email. Please, bro, I never did anything bad while I had your account. I respect you a lot, man, and I was even looking forward to meet you. I have many emotions attached to this account, bro. I am broke, man. Please help me, brother. Have mercy. Now, good timing for him that I was preparing this sermon. I was literally preparing this sermon while he sent me that email. So what, what could I do? The, the sermon had immediate applicability. So I, I emailed him back and I said, look, I forgive you. I'll let you use my account until you finish all your shows, right? Just finish all your bin, binge. Go, uh, you know, go ahead and just binge. But then in two months, I'm going to change the password again, right? Now, who knows? He may hack into my account again. What am I going to do then? I'm going to choke him. No, I'm not going to choke him. I will. <laughs> Have I been listening to my own sermon? Um, I'll, I'm not sure what I'm going to do then. Uh, but that's a lighthearted example of what we're, to do, what we're to do. I did forgive him. It took me a while, but I, I said, right, okay. Now, what if the person who has wronged you won't acknowledge their wrongdoing? What if they won't repent? Must we still forgive them? Well, Jesus actually gives us the answer to this question immediately before this passage. The two, the two passages go together. Verse 15. If you're, this, this is how... Verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So ideally, when one person wrongs another, it can be sorted out privately just between the two of you. And usually, this is what happens, and that, this is all that needs to be done. One person repents, and then the other uh, uh, forgives, and then there's reconciliation. But if that doesn't happen, we're told, verse 16, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the witness of two has a greater authority than the witness of one, like in a law court. But if that doesn't work, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now, not every single person in the church needs to know, but take it to the church leaders who represent the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, which means treat them as an outsider. 
Someone who by definition doesn't repent is not part of the church family. But how did Jesus teach pagan, uh, treat pagans and tax collectors? With great compassion, without judgmentalism. And so our, uh, so our aim, even at this stage, will be to reconcile. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Remember in our parable, when that first uh, servant was forgiven, he was literally loosed. But then when he, uh, when he didn't forgive his servant, he was then bound and thrown into prison. So loosing and binding is another way of saying not forgiving and forgiving. The local church is conferred the very authority of God to act on God's behalf when it comes to forgiving and not forgiving. One of the commentators I've been reading, David Turner, he says this, successively rejecting the overtures of a brother, two or three witnesses, and the church is tantamount to rejecting Jesus and the Father. So at that point, the church is given the very authority of God. Verse 19, Again, truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything, and that anything there is actually talking about legal matters, so disciplinary things in the church, if they ask for it, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Now that last verse there is one of the most misinterpreted verses, I think, in the whole of the Bible. Uh, people often say, here Jesus is teaching that when two or three pray together, then Jesus is with them. Uh, but what if you pray alone? Is Jesus not with you? Yes, he is. I think here Jesus is referring specifically to the issue of church discipline. For where two or three are gathered in my name, that means under my authority, there I am with them. When the local church disciplines, they have the authority of Jesus. Jesus is with them. Even a very small fellowship of two or three has that authority. So whenever we deal with our brothers and sisters, whether they are continuing to do the wrong thing, we need to remember that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of mercy. So even when our brother or sister is unwilling to acknowledge they've done the wrong thing, we still relate to them in a spirit of mercy, even if we can't forgive them per se because they don't acknowledge that there's any debt to forgive. The response is not judgmentalism, it's not harshness, it's not burning them at the stake. Right? Throw your matches away. We are agents of the great shepherd that look for the lost and the goal is reconciliation and return to the fold. And when they do, if they do acknowledge their debt, there can be no limit on the mercy and forgiveness that we extend, can there? Because we are citizens in the kingdom of mercy. I want to finish with this. I think frighteningly, many in Christian circles refuse to forgive their brothers and sisters or accept their apologies. One Christian lady said this, I have forgiven many things in my 69 years, but there is one woman I can never forgive. If that makes me a bad person, so be it. I am fine with my relationship with God and Jesus. Thank you. She might be fine with it, 
But according to our story today, is God fine with it? No, he's not. If we fail to forgive others, not only do we lack an appreciation of God's forgiveness in the past, but we lack a fear of God's judgment in the future. So I want to ask each of you here today, will you be a 77er? Will you forgive without limit? Now some people here have been wronged far more than I can imagine, so don't hear me say that this is easy, because I know it's not. And if you would like help in this area, please come after the service. I'll be up the front, there'll be leaders up the front, and we would love to help you and pray with you. Amen. We're going to pray and then we're going to have a time of the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great mercy shown to us in the Lord Jesus that forgave our insurmountable debt, our incomprehensible debt, a debt that we could never repay. And please, Lord, give us an appreciation of the debt we owed and the cost that it cost Jesus to pay it. And I pray, Lord, that that would shape our lives and shape the way that we treat others. For those here tonight that have been wronged, I just pray, Lord God, that you would move in their hearts, enable them to forgive, soften their hearts. Those who have done the wrong thing and are still refusing to repent, I pray, Lord God, that you would work in their hearts and as they understand what you've done for them, that would free them up to be able to be generous to others and to be able to admit their wrongdoing, knowing that there's forgiveness from you. I do know, Lord, that some people have been wronged more than I can imagine. So I know this is not easy. So I ask, Lord, that your powerful spirit would bring healing, would bring to mind all that you've done for them and soften their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.